Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this show are free, nearly 500 episodes and counting, all free. There's an official Other People app. That too is free. So everything is free. And what this means is I count on the support of regular listeners to help keep the show going. If you listen, if you like the program, if you get something out of it and you want to show some support, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay. All right. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded. Seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one So Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome <laughs> right. to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in uh, L.A. I'm in L.A. I'm in the city of Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Chelsea Martin is my guest. She is back on the program for the second time, and I could not be more pleased. She is celebrating the publication of her essay collection, Caca Dolce. It's out there now from Soft Skull Press, one of the better titles in recent literary history, Caca Dolce, Chelsea Martin, she and I in just a moment. So I was uh, listening to the interview. I was listening to the playback of the interview that I conducted with Chelsea, and I noticed that uh, I sound, I feel like I sound like I'm on sedatives or something, and it's because... We did this one at night, you know, and I feel like there is a difference, you know, especially now that I'm in this new routine with my day job and so on and so forth. I'm, you know, I'm working all day. I'm expending energy. I come home. I conduct an, uh, an interview at night and I feel like there's a different vibe to me in that hour. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe it's good. I feel like I'm more, you know, sedate, more calm. There's a tranquility to my uh, delivery that you might not be used to. Or maybe I'm reading too much into it. Just feel like I should make note of the fact that I uh, I am aware of this. I think I'm aware of this. Y you guys let me know. If you feel like I sound sedated in this interview, let me know. Tweet at me. You can uh, follow the show on Twitter, at OtherPPL. You can also follow me, at Brad Listy. And uh, otherwise, I don't know. Like I had to go to, my daughter had a basketball game this morning. So I did that watching these kids play basketball at age six and seven. That's sort of funny, but uh, she scored a couple of baskets. Her team is called the Narwhals. 
Uh, I find that amusing for some reason. They, they get to choose their own mascot. They chose narwhal. Which is an aquatic animal. Strange aquatic animal. Look it up. Google it if you're unfamiliar. Uh, and otherwise, you know, things are good. I'm still trying to figure out how to write. Trying to fit, you know, fit that back into my life. I have an itch. I want to do it. But I gotta, I gotta make the time. It's not about finding time. It's about making time. Gotta be better about that. Am I avoiding it? Probably avoiding it. Uh, otherwise, 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 nothing much. Things are okay. Life is fine. As you will hear in my conversation with Chelsea, I'm not drinking alcohol or smoking pot or anything, nothing in my current existence. I've gone completely sober. And uh, I, you know, I think I do pretty well in the, in the uh, interview to explain why. But one thing I leave out is the fact that I'm, I'm doing this uh, not only because I want to be at my very best for my children and like live my best life or whatever, but uh, also because I am, uh, I feel like I'm a fucking Buddhist. And I was reading this uh, book about Buddhism and they were talking about like, I think it's called the six paramitas. It's like part of the Buddhist uh, scripture or whatever it is. I don't know. Buddhist, uh, you know, the lineage, the lineage of Buddhist literature that's been passed on through the generations. There's this teaching called the six paramitas. And one of the things, and I think these are like six virtues or six virtuous ways of being that will help you in life. And help you lead your best life. And one of them is not taking intoxicants of any kind that fuck with your mind, mess with your perceptions. It's not like some prude Puritan thing. It's more like, listen, you asked, <laughs> how do you, you know, how do you do life as wisely as possible? That's what it's about. It's like, what's the deepest wisdom? And I struggle not with like some sort of overconsumption pattern or addictive pattern, though, though I guess like I did, you know, I was drinking a glass or two of wine every day religiously. So I guess that's some sort of addictive thing, but I have no trouble giving it up like none. And like the marker that I always used, uh, I've always used traditionally for evaluating whether or not substance is an issue in your life. Is that if it's having a negative effect uh, on important relationships that you have family or friends or whatever. And that, that's never even come close to being the case for me. And, uh, you know, so it's kind of odd. I feel like sort of odd for deciding that I'm not going to do this. And I'm trying to like figure out how to like do this in a, in a social way that doesn't cause some big stir because I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just a Buddhist. <laughs> But like, how do you tell people you're a Buddhist? And I, you know, I'm like, here's the thing too. I feel like in certain social situations, like if a friend invites me out for a drink, I think it's, I think it's re you know, reasonable to have one drink. Like, yeah, man, I'll meet you out. I'll have a beer with you at the pub. Have a glass of wine. I like wine. Have a glass of wine with dinner. No big deal. But not two, just one. Just enjoy your glass of wine. Because that, is, that seems like a fair compromise. And it also, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a level of consumption that doesn't have any impact on my senses. Like doesn't impair me at all or alter my mindset to a, you know, a, a, a detectable degree. Do you see what I'm saying? That's really the issue. Don't mess with your head. 
And so then I'm like, am I going off the deep end? Is this too much? Like, am I getting too serious about this? But, you know, I'm 42 years old. Maybe this is all just 40-year-old shit. Like, oh, I want to live my best life. I'm, I'm over the hill. I'm trying to get a figure. I got to get this right. What I find in pursuing this sort of uh, thinking is that it, uh, it can get confusing. And it can seem contradictory because it's like they like I I will read for example the some the stuff about the six paramitas, and it, it will register deeply with me in a way that I cannot escape. Like you know what this is right, this is right, this is true, this is deep wisdom. If you really want to go and live uh, live your life as wisely as possible, if I want to like if I live to be an old uh, to a ripe old age, I want to be one of those wise old men. Is that a bad aspiration? I want to actually get some wisdom in life. <laughs> Be comfortable in my own skin and a uh, good example to my kids. And, you know, not afraid, not like petrified of death. So on the one hand, I'm there. On the other hand, I can read stuff in similar books that says like, don't hang on too tightly. You got to relax. One of the big pitfalls of people who are taking on this practice and are pursuing this path is that they get into an achievement mindset. They get too wound up. They're trying to attain something in the future instead of enjoying the moment now. You see what I'm saying? So it can feel complicated. But anyway, like I guess I, that's a kind of a coming out. I don't mention the Buddhism thing when I'm talking to Chelsea because... I don't know. How do you talk about that? I don't want to proselytize. I also don't want to sound like a jackass. But it, why would I sound like, why would I be worried about that? Neurosis. That's why. Why can't I just say, yeah, I'm, I'm into Buddhism. I'm into Buddhism. I'm, I'm a religious man. <laughs> I've had such problems with religion in my life. And yet here I am. It just seems like, it seems like a very sane, rational set of instructions, but not easy necessarily to follow. And I'm trying to follow them. Is that okay? Anyway, you asked what was going on with me. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
My guest is Chelsea Martin. Her book is called Caca Dolce. Just say it with me now. Caca Dolce. It's an enjoyable title. And uh, she's a, she's a, one of my favorite people. I like her. Something I just really, um, I don't know what it is about Chelsea. But even when I first interviewed her and I didn't know her, I feel like there is something in her personality and in her, uh, what is it, sense of humor and I don't know, the frequency at which she vibrates activates good things in me. Boy, I'm really getting out there in this monologue. <laughs> um, yeah. I really like and admire Chelsea Martin. I think she's a, a real talent, and I'm so pleased that I had a chance to talk with her and have her like vibrate in my presence. <laughs> Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. By the way, maybe the weirdest monologue ever for my second interview with Chelsea Martin. I don't really feel exactly exposed. It is, well, this is my first book that's actually memoir. I like autobiographical. So it's been a, a little different and it's been more intense as far as like how many events I'm doing and um, what kinds of things. And yeah, I'm getting like, it's just really hard to, yeah, talk about yourself. I, I wrote a book about myself and that, that's been hard to just like feel like, okay, putting out in the world. It feels really self-indulgent to write a book about yourself and publish it. Does it feel, but does it make you feel vulnerable to share like difficult aspects like your relationship with your dad or Tourette's or like, you know, things that might, you know, might be difficult to talk about publicly. But I guess, you know, in, in a book, you're at a remove. It's one thing to like write it down, have it bound up, and then people get to go experience it on their own. But, you know, once it's out there and you're kind of interfacing with readers, do you have any, you, I guess you don't mm. have any qualms about that. I, it, like that stuff isn't anything I f wouldn't have told anybody. So I don't feel like I'm I'm exposing myself. Oh, really? No. I mean, not, not really. I feel what I am mostly feeling about it is just feeling like I'm exposing others. And what, like, has there been any fallout? Like, do you, did you have to like run this stuff by people or did you just decide <laughs> to let it ride? I didn't run it by anybody. I thought about it a lot and I, um, th thought I was going to, and I ditched it. I just didn't. And I'm a coward. Yeah. But, and you know. I guess we all have a right to our stories. This is, it, it is, I think it, it brings up interesting questions. I've talked to people who have written memoir where they have let people who appear in the story read it and have some degree of veto power. Uh, yeah. That's the thing is what, that's what it came down to is I wasn't going to give anybody veto power. So what would be the point of telling them beforehand, just being like, I'm going to do this shitty thing to you. Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing you can do. <laughs> Do you, but, and why? Like, do you feel like, well, this is my story? Like, why did you ultimately make that decision? It's just like, I want to write this book. I want to put it out there. It might expose some unpretty things about you or about our lot or, you know, the, our shared experiences together. It's a good question. <laughs> uh, why? Why write pretty much? Yeah, I don't know. What about, uh, like, I feel like a lot of the reviews, like you get tagged with the word fearless a lot and you just said, and you just said like, these are things that I would share with anybody. And it sort of made me pause, um, when you said that, because I think I'm somewhat the same way. Like I'm always a little bit, 
I have a hard time some, uh, understanding people who won't talk about themselves or like can't access their interior. There are people like that, perfectly fine people. But like, I'm a person who, if I get into a conversation with you and we're talking about life and stuff comes up, like I'll, I'll, I'll tell, tell anybody anything, like hopefully not to a point where it's weird. <laughs> yeah. I like that about people. I'm not, I mean, I am not very forthcoming, so I don't tell stories to people very often, but it's not because I don't want, it's not because I'm hiding anything. It's just because I'm shy and I don't like just assuming people want to hear my life stories. Yeah. I mean, I think the first time that we spoke was on this show and at the time you were living in Oakland and we were talking by phone and I, I want to say like when I got done with the interview, I was like, I don't think she likes me very much. <laughs> no, I liked you. <laughs> you did. Uh, yeah. We were, I mean, I, that was weird. Yeah. Cause it's like, weird to do a phone interview with somebody you've never met. Yeah. That's an odd one. It was an odd one. Um, but you did like me. You were like, yeah. your general impression was that it, I was tolerable. I mean, yeah, we hung out afterwards. So. Right, right, right. Um, okay. So the title of your book. <laughs> yeah. I love. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah. But you had to, uh, like how, how much did you have to battle to get that title? It was my biggest battle for sure. Um, my, I think they were just like the marketing team was worried about it sound it sounding confusing or people not getting it and not picking it up because it doesn't look like English and um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you ultimately prevail? I just kind of dug my heels in. I, I mean, I just think it's a cool title and I liked it and it was funny and I didn't, I entertained other titles or the idea of using another title, but nothing was ever good enough. What was, what were the, like the other titles? Um, well, like ASL was thrown around. What? Just what? Like age, sex, location. Okay. Um, well, I wasn't even aware of that. That's an acronym. That's a thing. Yeah. It's like an, an old chat room thing where you would log oh, right. on and be like ASL to like meet somebody or like get their basic uh, info. I gotcha. And then just some of the essay titles were also like up for debate, but I just didn't feel like they worked for the book title. And, and how did you land at Caca Dolce? Like initially, like where did the idea come from? I was brainstorming titles. So I would just make a list of, I would just open a word document and make a list of just words or phrases that I w was thinking about. And so did you, <laughs> it was like Caca and then Dolce were those like two words independently on the mm -hmm. list. And then you wound up putting them together once you sort of thought about it or did they, 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 they uh, occur uh, to you simultaneously? Kaka was something I was playing around with a lot. That was in a multiple title <laughs> ideas. And I think Dolce just got like put on there at some point. Just, I don't know. I would, I mean that making titles, that's kind of what I do every time I try to make a title is just, I just make a list of words and see what goes together or phrases. Gotcha. Uh, so it's pretty stream of consciousness. It's not too like rigid. I and, don't know. Okay. And so you're living up in Spokane. You're a great visual artist. Oh, thank you. I think you're really good. You're really gifted. Truly. I mean, you have to accept the compliment. Okay. I, I insist. And, uh, you're also a very gifted writer. So you have this sort of like embarrassment of riches 
and you have, I guess like a, it looks like a life, um, where you've been able to build, um, you know, the making of art into it and get the, you know, you get a lot of work done. If like, how many books have you published now? Caca Dolce is my fifth. Okay. And you're only 30 years old? Like not even? I'm 31. 31. So that's a lot of books to have published by the age of 31. Uh, I'm curious to know, like, are you super disciplined? Like, do you work Mm -mm. on a set schedule? Like, how does it, how does it look? I, uh, just write when I feel like it, basically. When I'm working on a project, I get obsessed with it and I work on it constantly and, um, as much as I can. Um, writing Caca Dolce, I was, I had kind of a unique, um, situation because I was living in Michigan and I wasn't paying rent and I had some savings. So I took a few months off and did the bulk of the writing then. How was Michigan? Uh, good. (laughs) Freezing in the winter? (laughs) Yeah, it was really cold in the winter. Yeah, I liked it. It was cool. Um, I didn't know very many people, so it was isolating, which was good for my writing. Okay. And so you are living rent-free? I I was in Michigan. How did that work? Um, (laughs) I don't know if I like, I'm allowed to talk about it really, but Elizabeth had like an extra house. Okay. Well, that's good. I don't know if she would not, not want me to say that. So, but, well, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> she has a place for you to stay. And uh, you, you weren't there alone. Uh, my boyfriend was with me. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. I was going to say that seems like really lonely to just be like in a house in Michigan, 45 minutes from like your only friend in Michigan. Yeah, it was, it was weird. Yeah. Does, like, did you find that living in that much isolation... Um, was it, was there any downside to that creatively? Mm, well, I knew the whole time that we weren't going to be there for so long. So I think I just enjoyed it. I think if I, if there wasn't like an end date in sight, then I would have been more scared and miserable about why we were there and stuff. But it, I, it just felt like I need to get as much work done as possible and take advantage of this and worked out pretty well i did have to work eventually so it wasn't like i was just jobless the whole time but right yeah no what about uh like what about finding a publisher like did you have a publisher waited like was self skull waiting for this or was this something Mm -hmm. you went out with i finished the first draft before i approached anybody i and i approached catapult which is connected to soft school are they yeah connected now but i approached them and they didn't want it. And then, um, I got my agent and then we started chopping it around to people, bigger publishers, and then catapult then like connected to soft skull. I don't know exactly how to say that, but then soft skull wanted it and asked, asked for it. Oh, wow. So it was kind of cool to, for that to work out. It seems like a good fit. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been a good experience. It's been amazing. Yeah. Do you, uh, did, and you didn't have any, like, I guess essay collections are sort of hot right now. Like they used to be like a few years ago. It's like the essay collections never sell and blah, 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 but that's kind of changed. I feel like. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I almost felt like I missed the big bubble. Like I'm just after it. When like everyone was crazy for essay collections. Yeah. Yeah. It's so weird how the market works like that. Like one, a few of them do really well. And then all of a sudden it's the thing. It's kind of like the movie business. It's hard to keep up with. You can't do, and you, the thing too is you can't write to that. You can't like write something hoping to like chase some bubble because as soon as you do, 
like the bubble bursts or things. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be insane to try to like follow a trend like that. Do you feel uh, like you enjoyed writing nonfiction as much as you have writing fiction? Like, was it an experience that you'd like to repeat or are you excited to go back to fiction or? Yeah, um, I would, I'm excited to go back to fiction. <laughs> it, it's been intense. Yeah. It's, it's been good, but um, intense and a lot more, uh, just have a lot more feelings about it than I thought I would. And it's, what does that mean? I just thought at some point after it came out or after I was done writing it, I would feel just relieved and like it was over and, um, out of my hands kind of, but I feel I haven't had that feeling yet. And, um, what do you mean? Like you haven't had the feeling of it, like being just like separate from you, like it, or you haven't had the feeling of, I guess I'm just, I feel like I'm still waiting for like shit to hit the fan or something or expecting something to happen. Like what? I don't know. Like my mom to be mad or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Has she read it? No. Oh, you yeah. think she will? I don't know. I you, don't know. Did you tell her not to? No. Oh, cause I have that feeling like, you know, I, uh, I mean, the book that I wrote, I'm not, I don't, you know, in, at least in the, its current iteration is probably not going to see the light of day, but when is I thought it that, nonfiction, no, it's fiction, but it's not, I mean, I, I don't know what I write is very thinly veiled borderline. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, anybody who knows me could, you know, parse it fair, you know, fairly easily. But I had that thought where I was like, wow, I'm really like, I felt very, uh, concerned or not, you know, I just had some concern that like people close to me might read it and be like negatively affected by it. I think it's a fairly common feeling. Yeah. It's a, it doesn't even make, I don't even know how to say it in a way that makes sense. I just feel like concerned for them Yeah, or something. Well, you know, I mean, that's the thing too. What is it? The Joan Didion quote, like a writer's always selling somebody out. Yeah. Like you sort of have to be in order to, I mean, you, you, the material comes from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and yeah, I mean, I've had some of these feelings with fiction I've written just because I, you know, work with stuff that comes from somewhere and I know where it comes from. And I feel like some of it is, um, <laughs> you could figure it out if you were the, the right person. Uh, but it somehow just, you know, I don't have to own up to it. So well, the problem too is like, if you go and tell somebody like, look, don't read this, then they're going to read it. <laughs> yeah. I would never say that to anybody. You wouldn't. No. You wouldn't just be like, Hey mom, like, listen, it's more trouble than it's worth. I'd appreciate it if you just sat this one out. <laughs> no, I would never say that. You wouldn't. Okay. I've never said that either. Yeah. But I maybe could imagine myself doing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> Do you have plans for like, like another book immediately? Are you, cause you always, you know, you also do all this visual art stuff. Like, do you find that you can alternate between, um, you know, working really intensively on a book and then you can go draw like that seems lovely to me mm -hmm. to be able to have like, cause it's a completely different side of your brain, isn't it? Like it's a, yeah, it is. Yeah, for sure. So do you, is that how you kind of work? Do you alternate a little bit to try to kind of relieve the, uh, yeah, I do. Um, it's really nice to work on something completely different when, after you've finished a big project, I also alternate while I'm working on stuff. I'll usually have two projects like, like visual and written or two writing projects. Oh, just something to 
um, go back and forth with just yeah. so I don't have to be in the same mindset so much. Well, no, I, I want to say David Foster Wallace would do that. And I read something about him that sounds precious, but like, mm-hmm. you know, um, but he would have like multiple projects going cause if like if one stalled or, you know, sometimes, yeah. sometimes you just, your wheels start to spin and you just turn to something else. And sometimes you need a few weeks just to process something about what you're doing and it's nice to not just have to stop working for those two weeks mm. or write a bunch of garbage that you know you're not going to use. And, you know, it's like very, I don't want to oversimplify or it can be really trite when you're talking to somebody who's worked on memoir to start like throwing around where it's like cathartic and, <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. But like, you know, all writing, especially like long form, when you're really with something for a while and you're working with certain themes and certain people or certain characters, like it's a deep dive. For sure. Did you come away from this with like greater insight? Did you feel, you know, did you feel like, okay, this helped me make sense of certain aspects of my life that maybe weren't as clear when I started? Yeah. Um, I think that I have a great sense of just being over all the stories I wrote about and being just accepting that those are stories and um, that they happened and it's not, I think that they were kind of gnawing at me or something for a while. And that's why I had to write them and I don't feel that anymore. So that feels really good. Yeah. It's like a way of releasing them. Yeah. And, and kind of, yeah, just putting them out, describing them as much as I can, honestly, as honestly as I can. And then just being like, that's all I can do. Okay. Let's talk about honesty. Because, uh, this is another word that is used to describe you. It's like, you know, fearless, raw, honest. (laughs) You've read the reviews, right? Do you read your reviews? Oh yeah. Do you agree? I'm, I'm definitely trying to be honest. Yeah. Do you feel like you're fearless on the page? Like, do you, you mean, can you write from a place of like no self criticism that you just let it go? Um, I, uh, no self-criticism you know what i'm saying like where you because like i can be very neurotic and i can get in my own way mm-hmm. and i think that maybe or i can be worried about well, how are people going to respond and like do i want to share this with the public and is this side of me like I'm, i need to be likable like there's all these different ways and it doesn't even have to necessarily um unfold in some really explicit way i think this can happen subconsciously to people but there are some people who are able i think to express themselves fearlessly or without filter, you know what I'm saying? They can put it down without, uh, exaggeration and without maybe obfuscation. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I guess I'm a little conflicted about using fearless to describe that all that. Cause I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I w- was afraid of anything, but I didn't feel like brave or I was being fearless or anything either. There was no like un- discomfort. I mean, I guess there's discomfort as you're like, you know, writing certain scenes that are uncomfortable. You're probably feeling something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then what about honesty? Because this is another thing that gets tricky. It's very easy to say like, well, I want to be honest in my writing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I, I'm that way. No matter what I'm writing, whether it's fiction or non you're trying to render in a way that feels true. Yeah. And I feel like that changes every day. You could write the same story and it, your honest perspective of it would be different. And then sometimes I can like catch myself lying to myself 
Yeah. And like, not like in really like gross ways, but like small ways. Or just not being careful enough and, and letting something generic slide in to describe a feeling that isn't specific enough. So isn't honest and accurate and accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, that's the edit. That's like where you, you kind of go back through on subsequent drafts and that's where you, you really find yourself like slipping or I don't know. It's, that's a weird, that, that can be like a weird sensation where you're like, holy shit. Like I felt like I was being so honest like yesterday. And then I reread this today and it's like, uh, yeah. I also missed... another factor is that I was writing these essays from the perspective of when the stories happened. So I was trying to capture the honesty of that time and not my honest perspective now or when I was writing it. So I did feel the urge a lot of time to like explain from my adult perspective, what I was, what I like learned from it or something looking back. And I really didn't want to do that because I didn't understand what I was doing at the time as clearly as I do now. But yeah, but, but like to have that still implied so that it would be part of the story because I am writing it as a adult. So you mean like having like uh, the benefit of hindsight implied or like, you know, uh, a wiser perspective implied? Yeah, but just through like the storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. But not the descriptions. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. It does. And like, like this brings up another question because I always uh, complain on this show about what a shitty memory I have. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember anything. Yeah. I don't know what that is. That's, I mean, is that good or bad? But it's like, it can be a little disconcerting because... Uh, like my wife's got a steel trap. She can like remember like entire things that happened to her when she was in third grade. And I've got nothing. Really? I mean, you don't like, remember third grade. I mean a little bit, but I mean, I'd really have to stop and think. You, really? And, yeah. Like I don't have great recall. Like when you think of third grade, what comes to your mind? Mrs. Sutherland. Your teacher. Yeah. Saying like, don't look left. No, like, like next year. You don't, or when you go to junior high, you don't look left. You don't look right. You look straight ahead at the chalkboard. That's like this, pretty specific. I guess so. But that's like the one thing I have. Yeah. But that, I'm sure like, I don't know your wife, but maybe she just remembers details and it seems like a lot, but it's just her specific memories. I guess it's not so. everything. It feels like it's more substantial than mine. So you wrote a, you wrote a collection of, um, memoirish essays, <laughs> right? So how good is your memory? Like how reliable, like you have to have had those thoughts. Like, am I remembering this correctly? You have to give yourself some creative license. I mean, I think there's, um, a common argument made that like, you know, it's all fiction to a degree. Yeah. I don't trust my memory very much. I think I have a pretty good memory. I, I do have a lot of very specific memories from a long time ago, but I don't trust them to be accurate. I, I know, I feel like I know that they've changed over time and aren't a real, you know, wouldn't hold up if there was video or something, probably. But my memories are, however false they are, they're my memories still. And my account of them was as honest as I could be. Well, sure. And then, uh, you know, I think too, like the process of writing, just sitting there and reflecting on this stuff and trying to remember, yeah, that'll jar some stuff. Cause it's like, yeah, I, I've had that happen where I say, I don't have a great memory. I think I maybe don't have great recall 
the memories are there yeah. and I can maybe access them, but it just takes a little work. You don't work. know how to call them up. Yeah. yeah. It's not like right there on the surface the way yeah. that it maybe is for others. Yeah. And, and yet if I'm writing, like all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, like that fucking happened. <laughs> right. Did you? Have- or if someone else just says something and you're like, oh yeah, that did, I did have that or something. Yeah. And, and did you, and then the other, the other aspect is like beyond like the little, um, surface level details of scenes or, you know, exchanges or things that happened. Uh, you also have to, you probably get into like some emotional memory where, you know, if you're trying to write from the perspective of Chelsea at age, whatever, you know, 12, um, like what's that experience like? You, are you able to get back in there and like inhabit yourself at that age and really remember what it was like and how you felt? Um, yeah, I, I really tried to do that. I don't, it's hard. It's really hard to, um, feel 12, but you can kind of do it. Yeah. I don't know. When I was like, I was moved, I guess I was what? Sixth grade. Is that sixth grade or seventh grade? Yeah. yeah. Something like that. I was just, I just had a memory. <laughs> I, uh, on the, I, mo- I moved to Indiana. I think I talked about this. Uh, see, now I'm, I'm demonstrating better recall than I, uh, I just, uh, claimed to have, but I want to say when I, fr- I talked to Jessica Anya Blau on this show, I want to say in that show, I confessed to her that on my first day of sixth grade, when I had just moved to Indiana, so it was like first day of, at a new school in a new town, I wanted to like make a, make a statement. <laughs> and so my mom and I went shopping for like a first day of school outfit. And I, for some reason settled on like yellow suspenders Ooh. and like a blue shirt and like khaki pants and like soccer shoes. And it did not go soccer cleats. No, 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 no. <laughs> what are soccer like shoes, indoor soccer shoes, like just like tennis shoes. Oh, okay. Are, those Adidas, you know, oh, or yeah. whatever, but it did not go over well at all. <laughs> <laughs> were people wearing suspenders at no, that time? <laughs> I was the only one. It That's was just, cool. yeah. But then they were yellow. That's awesome. I guess. Um, at 12. That's yeah. pretty adventurous. Sixth grade. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, just like a ball of nerves going into my like new school at junior high. Like it was, yeah. it was a lot. I remember. Oh my God. Yeah. School clothes. Yeah. That's a big deal. Like I, your first outfit of the year. I mean, we're going through that with my daughter uh, and she's just like first grade, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting. I'm like, holy shit, you got to have the backpack. Like what's your backpack going to be? And is it going to be like, I forget what she's got. I'm terrible at this. Maybe, maybe it's mini Mixie cues, <laughs> but it's something like that. You know, one of her favorite toys and you have to, you have to settle on all that because the kids pay attention. Yeah. It's your first impression. She was telling us last night, she's like, yeah, like so-and-so this girl saw me and Milo talking and like asked if we were in a relationship. And I'm like, Whoa, first grade. It's out of control. Yeah. That's crazy. These kids that were you in a relationship in the first grade? (laughs) No, no, but I do remember. I mean, okay. So now I feel like I'm contradicting myself because I'm, I'm having memories, but like, I think I do remember having crushes very early. Oh yeah. Oh, that's cool. I didn't. Yeah. I was always told boys didn't have crushes at that age. I did. Cool. Yeah. Aaron Hosking in, in second grade. I very vividly remember having a crush on her. And then, um, one of the most heartbreaking moments of elementary school was that I got dumped by a girl named Julie Talma on the day that the space shuttle Challenger exploded. And we watched it live in the presentation room at my elementary school. And immediately in the aftermath, 
like all of our teachers were crying. They turned the TV off. It was like this traumatic thing. She had her friend like slide over to me and hand me a note and I opened it up and it just said, you're dumped. You're dumped. That was it. Wow. That's brutal. <laughs> Tell me about it. So what did you do? I, th I really felt genuinely sad. Like I, I mean, what'd you do to deserve it? Nothing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love, yeah. I love how I immediately thought you were <laughs> asking like, <laughs> I thought I'm, I want to say like, I got like, uh, I got choked. I don't think I did anything. I think it was just like, I don't think I did anything to deserve the fact that we were going together. And I don't think I deserve, I deserved being dumped. I think the whole thing was just like fourth grade. Just an exercise in yeah, relationship studies. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, acting it out or whatever. Yeah. So, um, let's talk about uh, your childhood, um, which you address some in the book. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to go over ground that we covered in our first conversation and I'm trying to like remember, but I think we probably touched upon some of it. I have no idea. Um, like what kind of kid were you? Mm -hmm. You were kind of, because I mean, you described yourself as what, like a in high school, at least like a lonely bitch. <laughs> yeah. In high school. Yeah. I was a lonely bitch. Mostly. Um, I, I was, I was a fun kid. I think, I don't know. I had friends usually and like, I was like into rollerblading and biking and toilet papering houses. You were really into that. Yeah. Why were you so into toilet? I mean, I guess we all like toilet papering houses. Did you used to do it? Yeah. Yeah. I did a lot like smashing pumpkins, though. I felt I didn't do a ton of that. I felt always bad about that because I, like, I hated when I was a kid when someone smashed our pumpkins. Yeah. Well, the pumpkins are cool. So you're ruining something cool. Yeah. Well, but, but it, unless it's like, you know, mid-November, it's over. Let it go. Yeah. <laughs> Smash them. Smashing pumpkins <laughs> in November. Uh, uh, yeah. I don't know. I think toilet papering is just you get you feel in control. You feel powerful. You get, I don't know. Do you ever can cars? Can? Yeah. What does that mean? So what we would do, I mean, I think what you're really supposed to do is you're supposed to like have like empty, like soda cans or beer cans. And you put like five or six or seven of them on like the ends of like a fishing line. And then you like string it across the road. And so that when a car goes through, it like catches on the bumper and then they're dragging the cans away. Oh, wow. And, but no, what, I've never heard of that. But what we used to do, which was really stupid in hindsight, is we would string the cans. Like we'd flip up the pop top. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And then we'd string the fishing line through those. And we'd have like, you know, 30 cans on a piece of fishing line. And we would lay it across the road. And then we'd have like, you know, one guy on one side of the road, one guy on the other side of the road. And when a car came, we would pull it taut. And like wave it so these cans look like they were just floating in the middle of the uh, air. Oh, that's that would be really scary. And the car, the cars would come screeching to a halt because they wouldn't want to hit it. And we got chased down once. Some guy, you know, grabbed. I think he grabbed me. I was always the one who got caught. <laughs> <laughs> my grandparents used to live right next to a highway, like on a hill, and me and my cousins would go moon the cars passing by when we were really little. How little? Um, probably like five to eight. Yeah. That's like a good mooning age. Yeah. That's a big thing. Like. So fun. And, uh, do you ever get in, do you ever get busted? Do you ever get like arrested? Arrested? Yeah. You ever get in trouble with the law when you were a kid? Oh, just ever? Yeah. Um, no. No. You got away. Yeah. Are you fast afoot? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I was really good at hiding and running away from people. I could see that. Yeah. 
I can see you. Yeah, you're not the person who gets caught because you're sort of quiet. You know how to disappear, blend in with your surroundings. Yeah. I just always had an exit in mind. Or right. like a bush I knew to go to. And you, uh, you said you were like a social happy kid. But then I guess like with adolescence, that stuff can change. Well, I got a really bad haircut. And then I just lost all my self-esteem. What happened? What kind of haircut are we talking? Do you know Posh Spice haircut? No. She, it was just like really short overall and then had really long bang things, spiky bang type long hanging things. Okay. So I asked, I asked my mom to give me that haircut, but it was really stupid. So I cut the um, hanging bang things off. So I just had a bowl cut. And it was like sixth grade or when I was going into seventh grade. So really bad time to do that. Kids not nice. No one knew if I was a boy or a girl, which was whatever. I I mean, I dressed like a girl. So I think, but I looked like a little boy in the face and in the head. (laughs) (laughs) I think I just like really lost my (laughs) social momentum Yeah, because I didn't feel confident. That's another part of it that you forget is like how intense social life is in adolescence. Yeah. Especially for girls. I think there's a lot of, when you start being a teenager, there's just a lot of competition and competition for what for boys attention or competition for for like being cool and popular and like the cool one or the one that has the fun people to hang out with or the main girl of the group or something. What's the science in that? What's like the bias? It's got to be like, isn't that like why that you're just sorting out like pecking order for mating? Like what, what is the reason for that? Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, it must be, I don't know really. I feel like we should be I was improving. always horrible at it. My yeah. friends would like always pit each other against each other, you know, to try to be, I think to try to be the cool one ultimately. And I would always be upset because I never knew who to be mad at at any given moment. Do you feel that human beings are inherently bad or inherently good? Do you have a sense of that? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) No, it's a, it's a real question. Like, I mean, like this whole project, cause I've been thinking about this lately. Like you can look around and there's so much evidence for like, man, everything is fucked up. Yeah. And like human beings are a diseased species that like is in badly in need of some change and some help. But then I also think that like every person that I'm seeing, like, like they were a baby that was like shitting itself and like screaming, like, and being up all night. And like, somebody had to take care of that. The, just the fact that they're here, yeah, you know, and like, then you hold a baby and you're like, eh, there's like something innately sweet in all of us. And then it gets lost along the way. And then I can also get like super spiritual and be like, you know, we're all waves but we're all the ocean and that ocean is perfect. You know what I'm saying? I can mm-hmm. get like, and it's just, it's just caught, you know, it's clouded up, you know, and we just got to wipe it away. Yeah. I feel both. I feel like it depends on my mood. Sometimes I can be like, everyone's fine. We're just all doing the best we can and working with what we got. And no one's like, not many people are being actually malicious, but then I sometimes think, just everyone's so selfish and self-absorbed and don't, they don't really care unless they're forced to. I feel both ways. I feel like it's not one or the other. What do you feel like? What are your feelings about like 
making art, especially art that like really looks inward and like deals with the self in an explicit way. Like, I guess, I mean, I guess my feeling on it is that there's something very selfless about doing that work and then sharing it with people. Hmm. But do you ever feel conflicted? Like, wow, I'm really spending a lot of time on Chelsea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my God. Yes. <laughs> I've had, yeah, it's been a big internal conflict for sure. It, uh, yeah. Writing about yourself. It just sounds bad. Doesn't it? I wrote a book about myself. Please read it. But isn't every book about you in something? Every book's autobiographical. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you have, I mean, you obviously Not have literally though. Yeah. But, but kind of, I don't know. I have like a very complicated thought process on uh, like autobiography, uh, autobiography and writing. And I can get like sort of David Shields in about it sometimes where I'm like, just, just fucking tell me. Like you're writing this novel, which is like this layered way of saying that you have a complicated relationship with your mom or your dad or your sister. You know what I'm saying? Like, just tell me about that relationship. And like, maybe the only way to even begin to broach it is to fictionalize it. And maybe you can actually go deeper if you do. But a lot of times as a reader, I'm just trying to like sniff out like what's going on. It's kind of why I do this show. It's mm -hmm. like, just tell me, you know, mm -hmm. like, and maybe I'm missing the point or something, but I can feel that way. Hmm. But then other times I will read fiction that I feel like is rendered beautifully and like I totally buy the trick. So I guess it just comes down to the way it's done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th I definitely think art comes from a, pl a place in somebody that is trying to, they're trying to explain at least or figure out. And so in that way, it is about them or what they perceive to be important or true or interesting. Are you happy? Like, do you feel like you're a happy person? I feel pretty happy lately. I have a bad attitude right now. Why? I don't know. I'm, I just book tour, like, takes it out of you, kind of. Travel stress. Yeah, it's been a lot of traveling. Well, and this is the other thing, too. It's like, there's a little bit of, there's a lot, not even a little bit. There can be a lot of nerves around, like, a book going out. Because you're like, okay, now this thing's out there. Are people reading it? People are reviewing it it's out of my hands. It's a little bit of like this leaving the nest sadness or something like, you know, it's no longer yours. Right. You know? So like, there's a lot of emotions kind of packed into it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get, do you get, I mean, it sounds like, I don't know. I feel like you're probably better at it than I would be like, um, getting too invested. Like, I mean, managing that emotional kind of roller coaster. like, are you able to sort of distance yourself or you find yourself getting caught up in, in like, I don't know, just all of it, like the concern about how the book's going to be received and that sort of like mournful feeling of like, oh, it's gone now. And, you know, right. Um, yeah, I guess I'm not thinking that much about it. Um, do you care about reviews? Do they affect you if they're not what you, if they say something that's kind of like negative, do you, do you take that? Like, does it really wound you or can you, are you able to take it in stride? For my fiction, I really like every review I've ever read. Like, some of them are kind of stupid, but I've never been hurt by a review of for of one of my fictional books where someone didn't like it or had all these reasons for not liking it. It's never um, been an issue. Um, but for Cacodolce, I think... 
it might be different. I haven't gotten that many reviews yet, but I can, I have gotten some negative remarks and it feels a lot different and I take it a lot more personally. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, easy. This is a, this is a memoir, you know, this is a memoir basically. Well, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's attacking my character because it's me and I don't know. I mean, it's not that bad. It hasn't been anything really, but I definitely felt a dif- a difference in what it's not, I. It's not as much distance for you. From... It's just they're talking about me directly. It's not my characters. It's not my artistic choices. Right. It's my life and how I chose to present it. It's just really personal. Yeah. And then, like, what about uh, spiritually? Like, do you have anything there? Like, are you somebody who goes to church or who? reads about stuff like that? Are you a total atheist? Do you have, um, yeah, I don't believe in God. Is that what you're asking me? Yeah. Yeah. I don't. You're atheist. Yeah. So no, but there's and there's no practice. There's no, like, is it a preoccupation of yours? Like what happens when we die? Or do you just think like the lights out, that's it. We're done. The only time I spend thinking about that is really late at night when I can't sleep and I will get like a, a, pa- a moment of panic where I'm like, fuck, um, someday I won't exist. And then I'll just get really scared. That's pretty much all. That's pretty much the extent of it. I feel like everybody, like if, if you wake up at a certain hour, it's like between like two thirty AM and like sunrise, it's almost impossible to have like a really like happy, peaceful thought. <laughs> like if you're up at that hour and you're staring at the ceiling, like it's just going to get dark and yeah. you know, you're just going to obsess about all Do this. Do you have sh- trouble sleeping? Sometimes. Yeah. Though I find that if I get up early and I'm working really hard, which I have been for a long time, um, it's better, but yeah, I can, I, like I have an easy time going to sleep, but if I wake up, I have a hard time going back to sleep. Hmm. I can't just like roll over and just like conk back out unless I'm really tired. So I guess my way of combating it is to just be exhausted and then yeah. I'll, then I'll sleep the yeah. next day. What do you mean? Like you'll be exhausted for a day and then you'll, well, I just mean like running myself, like get up at five thirty or five, you know, five fifteen. uh, exercise a lot. Oh, I see. Like I, I use a standing desk at work. Like mm-hmm. I don't sit down all day. Um, That's, like, yeah. like I have a whole system <laughs> <laughs> just to tire yourself out just enough to, to sleep. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to sound too like manic and crazy about it, but like, it's just, you know, I have a lot of energy and like, if I don't burn it, then it's gonna, you know, it's going to be there and it's going to sort of churn. Yeah. That's, so it, that sounds like the healthy way to deal with it. I hope so. You don't take like pills, sleeping pills. I mean, I, you know, I will take an Ambien um, sometimes, and I can get into like patterns where it's like, I'll have Ambien and I'll be, and I'll have to take like a half of one just to like, as insurance. Cause I know I'll sleep. Uh, but what, but then I get into this, like this, like mindset where if I'm like in bed and I'm like not asleep yet, or if I wake up, I'll be like, I'll just go take one. Yeah. If it's there. Then I'm, then I know for sure that I'll sleep. And I'm not a person who likes to uh, I don't want to depend on pills. Right. I'm the same way. Yeah. I hate it. It feels gross. Yeah. And it's like, I don't even know if it's, is it really good sleep? I mean, it feels like sleep. Um, I've never taken Ambien. Oh, you haven't. Mm -mm. You can get addicted to that stuff. Yeah. It sounds like something I would like 
so I don't want to try it. <laughs> <laughs> it is sort of magical. <laughs> like you just like, cause it's like, you know, it's like this, it's like, whoa, like I just, last thing I remember, I was like, hang, you know, having trouble sleeping and then I took it and it's all like all of a sudden like just snap. Yeah. Like, that's creepy. Yeah. Do you, is it restful? Like in the morning, are you just. It's- it's better than not sleeping. Mm-hmm. I'll put it to you that way. Like, is it the best sleep I've ever had? Like, I think probably the best sleep is just that natural, deep, peaceful, unstressed sleep. Right. But I know that some sleeping pills I've taken just make me feel really groggy in the next day. Is it like that? I, yeah. I mean, I think especially if you don't really sleep them off. Like, you know, if like, like you it, have to sleep the full, you have to sleep. Yeah. The, yeah Cause if there, there's still like traces of it, you know, running through you, then you're going to feel like a little wonky, but they, they supposedly, I mean, I think that's like kind of the, the whole pitch is that they they, they kind of burn through your system pretty quickly. Mm. But, uh, I don't know. It's not something I want to make a habit of. Yeah. But uh, just insurance insurance like for the bad nights sometimes. Or when I'm traveling. Yeah. You know, like, especially if you're traveling where there's like big jet lag or something. You know, right. Yeah. Then it makes sense. But. Um, so if you're like an atheist and you're not like super death obsessed, it doesn't sound like maybe though, I think I kind of am, but, um, like, what do you turn to for solace? I guess this is a question that's on my mind, you know, like how people make their way through life. Like we all have to deal with existential stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like, what do you turn to for solace? Um, solace. <laughs> Like, is it art? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Do you read a book? Do you, like, when you have, like, emotional quandaries or difficult times, like, do you turn to friends? Like, what do you, or do you just deal with it internally? Or do you just not deal with it? Like, um, I don't know if I figured it out, really. I think I have a hard time managing that, those feelings. I don't really know what to do. Yeah, I think I rely on, um, people a lot, uh, like, tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah. Or like my boyfriend to just, I don't know. Settle you? I guess, yeah. Yeah. But I don't re- really even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, I'm trying to think of a moment when I was needed solace or like was thinking about something in that way. Or, but just like, I mean, I'm just talking about like solace from like the grind of existence. Like, isn't it? You know, I don't want to sound too melodramatic, but like life is hard, you know, Hmm. (laughs) or maybe not, (laughs) maybe it's effortless for you. No, it's not. (laughs) I think I just live in anxiety and I don't really try that hard to get out of it. Maybe. I don't know. Weed's legal in Washington. Yeah. (laughs) You smoke a lot of weed? No, not really. But because it's legal, I have like figured out what kind I like. So that's really helpful. And if you get the dose right. Yeah. You like eat it or you smoke it? Do you like the vape pen? The vape thing. Pen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, because we can, we can be, uh, I think it can be legitimately anxiety reducing, but I can also make me anxious. If yeah. It's the well, that's kind. the, like the sh- different strains or whatever. I don't really know a lot about weed, but I know. And I've always hated weed like my whole life, but, um, if you can find the right strain, I think it can be really helpful. It helps me relax a lot. Yeah. Well, you know, like I'm on this kick now where I'm not, I'm doing nothing. I'm not like, I'm, I don't drink. Oh, I don't smoke. I mean, it's not that long, but like mm-hmm. I've come to this, like this idea that I'm entertaining is that 
if I want to be like my best self for my kids and just like, I want to do my life the best I can. I'm not saying I'm never going to have a drink again because I don't even have a, you know, I'm not like some crazy drunk or something like, but I was just thinking like, if I wanted to do my best and I want to face down all that I'm going to have to face down in life and then eventually in death, like, I don't know. I don't want like any crutch at all. Hmm. And like, I don't want any like anesthesia. I want, it's like natural childbirth or something. You want to feel it all. <laughs> I want to, <laughs> I want to, like, I, I mean, at least that's the mood that I'm in. And then I think too, if I'm being like super deep, honest with myself, there's always been like a bit of discomfort in me because uh, I would have like a couple of glasses of wine every night. That was like my wine down, you know? Mm hmm. And it was never more like I never like woke up like face down with like an empty bottle next to me or something, right. you know, but I was just like, do I really need this? Yeah. Like, well, it's it... like, yeah, it's like a crutch. It's like the pill thing kind of, it's like, Dumbo's like you don't want to rely on something. I don't want to, I want, I can fly without the feather. Yeah. You know? I get really uncomfortable when I rely on alcohol too much too. Alcohol, like, yeah, alcohol bums me out a little bit, like as a, as a thing. Yeah. Just, just as, yeah, I don't know why. But pot, I feel like is, I've always said it's like a little bit more sophisticated somehow. I mean, I don't know. But I don't know. <laughs> exactly. That's what I tell myself. <laughs> like, oh, no, no, no. I take, you know, sativa blend in a chocolate, you know. I think it's just the, like, I'm excited because it's just a new thing that I can break up all the alcohol with and <laughs> like. Mix it up a little bit. Yeah. I don't have to think I don't have to worry about becoming an alcoholic as much. Yeah. That's not a good way to go, but we'll see. I don't know how long it'll last. I hope I, I mean, I haven't had any problem at all not doing it. I don't like know. you don't think about it or care. Not at all. Well, but like, you good. know, but what I replace it with is like, I just, this is kind of my experiment is I was like, Oh, you know what I'm going to do instead of like coming home and like eating dinner and having like a glass of wine or two, I'm going to meditate before I have dinner. Wow. And like that, performs the same function it just i just need to like slow down and chill out wow and like that does it but i'm not like ingesting you sound so healthy i'm trying to be but <laughs> i have a lot to deal with i got two kids my son yeah they're so little too yeah and my son is a lot of work and it's like you know it's, it's all that it's like trying to kind of like compute all that and make sure that like i do my best That's i don't want awesome. i don't want to look back and be like eh. you know i want to be like i did the best i could yeah you know? That's great. So, wow. We'll see. I hope I don't sound too like. No, I'm. I feel really happy for you. All right. Well, I hope so. I hope it works out. I'm trying hard, and like, um, I have this like deep. Okay, this is turning into like you interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's um, my ultimate fantasy. No. But here's a. I'll try to like bend this into a question for you, because <laughs> it's been something I've been thinking about. When you were writing Caca Dolce, did you ever have certain subject matter where you were like, do I have authority to write about this? I mean, I guess it was your life, but like, did you ever get into terrain where you're like, does anybody really need to hear Chelsea expound about X or that, did certain subject matter feel more fraught than others? Uh, there was a lot with my family that I thought about going into that I ultimately didn't because it would have been a lot of explaining other people's actions and intentions. And I didn't want, I didn't, yeah, I didn't feel like I had the authority to talk about what other people wanted or 
their personal trajectories, even though it would be, it's, you know, extremely relevant what my family was up to, to what I decided I was, but I felt like, yeah, that was a little bit off limits. And for listeners who, um, like, you know, may not be familiar with you or your work or previous work or whatever, like, can you give like the, the basics of the family situation? Like you were raised by your mom. Uh, yeah, my, my mom raised me. (laughs) She got married when I was seven to, um, my stepdad, I guess, and had two kids with him. So I had siblings, uh, later in my childhood. Yeah. And then she divorced him when I was finishing high school. And what, and then your dad. And then my dad came back into the picture when I was like 15 or 16. Okay. But where, like when, when, how old was your dad when you were conceived? 15 or 16. Okay. And then like your parents split, your mom had you raised you. Yeah. Okay. And then your dad comes back into your life when you're a teenager. Yeah. So that's complicated. Yeah. Um, do you feel like this book gave you perspective on it? Cause that feels like the heart of the book to me, right? That's the, that's the heart of it is like this complicated relationship with your dad. Um, I wouldn't say that's the heart of it. It was, a um, an intense thing to go through overly, overly dramatic, I would say. Um, but that's not like that doesn't define me. I don't think, Yeah. but it's, yeah, it was a big, a big old thing. Yeah. You got to write about it. I mean, I would, I would think and, um, Tourette syndrome. Um, yeah, I didn't know you had that. I mean, like that's what a doctor told me. I never followed up after that doctor and I don't use that word ever. So it's like, like, I mean, my, I have a very limited understanding of what Tourette's even entails, but like, I always think it's about the uncontrollable verbal tics. Yeah. That's like the most. Yeah. And so how did it manifest for you? Or like, do you even consider yourself having it or no? Um, I think of it just as kind of like obsessive tendencies or like obsessive thought patterns. I mean, the doctor I went to said Tourette's on OCD and I was just, you know, having really repetitive thoughts and bothersome, um, like motor tics in my, like in my like abdomen and my extremities just like moving my body in really weird annoying ways over and over um yeah and was it it's like what, like obsessive tendencies like uh can you trace those back in your life like was that something you feel like was, has been with you since you were a kid no it definitely came on really strongly when i was like first a teenager adolescence yeah and it was kind of weird and scary because i didn't know why i was thinking about random stupid shit over and over, you know, that's really weird. Can you, like what kind of random stupid shit? Was there like a, a, a through line where there are like similarities, like certain things that, you know, that you would tend to obsess uh, about? Well, in my book, I describe like this, um, just this like imaginary man walking up a hill, but there would also be like just something someone would say that I would, I would just get stuck in my head for weeks and I would just hear the same sentence over and over um, that didn't even mean anything really or wasn't important. And it would just get stuck in there. Okay. Here's kind of a weird question. Uh, I guess maybe not that weird, but like, do you feel like 
like, cause you talked earlier about how, like when you get into a project and you start to really become like invested in it, you'll get obsessed with it and you'll mm -hmm. work really, really hard on mm -hmm. it. Like, do you think that that is maybe a manifestation of obsessive tendencies and that it, it, in a way it's kind of like serving your art? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cause like I'm the opposite. It's like, for me, it's like, Oh God, I got to work on this thing. And like, like once I get there and I'm there and I'm in it, it can be great and I can get rolling. But like, I'm not like one of these people who can write like 15,000 words in a day. Yeah. Like I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I have, a, I'm not real productive usually. Like I have a lot of, I, I'm not obsessive all the time. I do have trouble starting projects and getting into stuff too. But yeah, I, I think I just do have like a really, cause it's, I, once I get really into something, I can't really think about much else and I just want to work on it and do it. So do you ever like, did you, are you like a person who has to move around? Like when you're not actually writing, but you're still thinking about it, are you like taking walks and like working out essays and like structure and stuff like that? <laughs> hmm. Um, I don't have really any practices like that. I, uh, I guess I'm just asking like when you're away from the computer or you're away from the page, but you're still, I'm assuming chewing on it. Do you, yeah. do you, are, you, like, are you able to kind of push it down and let your subconscious do the work or is it like right up on the main stage in your brain? Like just like when I'm in the thick of it or when you're like, when you're in the thick of it, like in front of the computer, but also like when you're off, like at the grocery store or something like, like to what yeah. degree are you obsessing? I guess. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I don't turn it off when I'm obsessing about it. Right. Like I'll be thinking about it when I'm cooking or going and doing my errands or whatever. Yeah. I, uh, when there's something weird, mm -hmm. I don't know why, like, I guess this is like, I'm trying to draw some sort of similar experience, but like, I've been sort of obsessing about this thing that's been happening to me when I've been meditating lately, uh, where I'll be sitting there and I've like all of a sudden, it doesn't happen every time, but like you talked about that man walking up a hill, like mm -hmm. the imaginary man. I think that's what maybe made me think of it. It's like all of a sudden, like I'll see somebody's face or like, I'll see a person like in incredible detail. Mm -hmm. Like it's a real person to me. You know what I'm saying? It's like, who is this person? Yeah. And they come from nowhere. Oh yeah. And I, and I, you know, I don't want to get like, Wait, while you're meditating. Yeah. Hmm. And like out of nowhere, you know what I'm saying? Like it just emerges and I don't want to get too woo woo. Cause it's not like, I don't like, like look at them and go, I know you, mm -hmm. you know, it's not, but I'm like, where do they come from? And like, are they real? And like, what the fuck was that? Do they do anything or you just see their face? I just see their face, but it's like men, women, like, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's not like one per. it's like, you know, and it's, it's random at different, uh, ethnicities. Yeah. I wonder if it's someone you've seen before at some point. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe that's what it is. It's some like really buried Something memory. Something surfacing. Yeah. It's that's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. <laughs> it's the only like thing that's like is remotely cool. It's I wonder like, if you could try to like make it happen more. I doubt it. It kind of, it kind of like, it feels like, uh, it has the, like the sensation that it, that I get is that like, you just sort of like, it's like a ghost almost, you know, like it just sort of like, what's the word apparates or like you couldn't interact with it. You just, no, it's just like, it just shows up. It's like <laughs> sudden, you know, I don't think I could generate it. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. I could, maybe you can like, Maybe you could, if you really paused and consciously tried to imagine a person, you could probably come up with something. It seems like if it's happening while you're meditating, you might be doing something to cause it. 
Okay. And if you could figure out what that was, you could try to make it. But it feels like it's coming from like spontaneous nowhere. Maybe you're right though. Maybe, you know, maybe there's something I'm doing. Um, all right. So let's talk about other stuff. <laughs> what do you want to talk about that we haven't covered? I don't know. What's your favorite song? <laughs> you know, there's like this thing at work where we have like an Alexa. Oh, yeah. You know, where you're like, Alexa, play. And like, that's what we use to play music. And it's actually quite nice. Mm -hmm. like, I recommend it as like a music player. But like I work in sort of like this open floor plan office. And so like anyone can ask Alexa to play songs. So like then it, vocally? Like yeah, people are just... Yeah, you can be like, Alexa, play, you know, mm, okay. Shine On You Crazy Diamond or whatever it is. And like then the song will play. But like it becomes like this thing where... You know, if you call out a song, like you then are like sort of like checking everybody's reaction. Mm -hmm. Like, did, did I pick a good song? Are people enjoying it? It seems really a lot of pressure. It is exactly. How many people are there? There's like six or seven oh, yeah. in the bullpen. You know, well, that's not that many. No, but it's enough. Right. And it's like you're imposing your, you know, you're kind of imposing something on people. Mm -hmm. Like you're going to have this experience of this like six minute song or whatever it is, you know. And then <laughs> just a vision of you being a DJ, like having this experience every time you put on a song. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a lot of pressure, but <laughs> I always try to like, and then the thing too, is I try to like be empathetic about my selections. Like, uh, I'm like, I won't necessarily put something on that I want on. I'll, I'll try to like read the movie. Oh, I guess yeah. that's what a DJ does. Right. So like, you know, I'll yeah. try to pick something that maybe has more feminine appeal for like the girls in the office. So that's it's weird. not just like, it's not just like dad rock. <laughs> but then when you do that, the girl, it's like, do the girls think that's weird that I put but that? But they can just pick their own song. They can. I don't know. I'm just trying to like, uh, accommodate people. And then I also like to like subvert people's expectations a little bit, I think in terms of what they would imagine I would like to listen to. Hmm. I had a Lyft driver yesterday who was just like blasting the radio and dancing. And I thought like, how cool <laughs> to be able to do that. Just, yeah. To just be like really unselfconscious about what I like, what music I would want or like care about. Yeah. And he was just like enjoying it for himself. I was like, that's awesome. People who can dance freely. Yeah. Aren't like body. Like I'm just too self-conscious in my body. Like if I'm dancing, unless I'm like, blindingly drunk mm -hmm. it's really the only way that i can do it without um like sort of doing the play-by-play -play in my head like oh my god i'm dancing what about if you're do you ever dance alone like in your house i mean maybe a little but like not like i don't like spend time on it <laughs> <laughs> but i love music like i love music you know i don't have enough time i wish i could enjoy it more but like we have uh you know speakers and in, in our house i like can and we have an Alexa, which I, I swear, like, it really does make me play music more because huh. I don't have to go search for it. Right. And, like, I can just be like, play some jazz, you know, and like, oh, it just yeah. turns it on and like, then it streams. So I try to have music on because I like the idea of like my kids growing up with like music playing in the house. Yeah. You know? And so I just think that exposure is nice. That's cool. And it adds like a, um, it adds a dimension to the room. Like I, I, I spent way too much time not having music playing. I think it's good to have some music playing in the background. Yeah. You know, like, especially like at a level where it's like part of the background, it's part of the ambiance as opposed to like, you know, putting headphones on and like really like having a listen, which is great, but like you can't always do that. Mm -hmm. And most of the time you can't be doing that. Mm -hmm. um, Does your daughter like anything you play? Yeah. I mean, she doesn't, she's not at the age yet where she is like, ew, 
you know, but she does, she likes this song. There's this guy named Perry Grip. He has this song called It's Raining Tacos. <laughs> she like, that's like her jam. She's like, wow. play, she's like Alexa, play It's Raining Tacos. <laughs> and it's like this, like, you know, really annoying, like, uh, like what's a techno? I don't even know what you would call it, but like, it is amazing. Kids respond to it. Hmm. Is like, it a kid song? Yeah. It's oh, like this okay. guy makes kid songs. So it's like, it's raining tacos Mm-mm. from out of this guy. And they think it's hilarious, you know? That seems hilarious. Yeah. You can listen to it. Okay. <laughs> I'll play it for you. Play it on the outro. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I will. Um, so, okay. So you're on this book tour. You say you uh, work on multiple projects at once. So I, I assume you have another book in the works? Mm, not exactly. Um, the Caca Dolce was pretty intense, so I haven't started other projects. Exactly. I'm like thinking of things and i'm i've started things but i haven't um committed do you have like a vision for how you want things to go in your career like is there some vision that you're trying to execute are you making this up as you go do you feel like things are subject to change or are you like one of these writers who's like i'm gonna write i'm gonna publish i'm gonna be the one who finds a way and like builds up this readership I mean, it seems like with five books published by 31, like you're on that track because it, um, I don't have any sort of vision about what this is supposed to look like or what I'm, what I'm trying to get or do. No, uh, I do like making books a lot and I think that I would be happy if I was doing that forever, but I also feel like I'm not trying to do it in a way that's marketable exactly or like my books I feel like are pretty different from each other so my readership might suffer for that because like certain books are for some people like, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's like there's not like one like consistent sort yeah. of yeah like I don't know what a, what a Chelsea Martin book is exactly and I, I'm not trying to like do another memoir or another book like my other books yeah but I bet you people who have read your work, like all of it would probably be able to find like it's inevitable that there's going to be some sort of through line. Right. But it's not like a marketable one. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I feel that way. Like I, you know, cause I, I feel like to have mass appeal, it's not something you, you know, some people it's weird. They like, that's just the, they vibrate a certain way. I mean, I don't even know how to put it, but you know what I'm talking about? And like people respond or they have a set of aesthetic interests that just happens to match up with the culture. At the yeah. Time, you know, it's just some, yeah. Some people just happen to have like marketable, a marketable way of writing or a certain personality or, yeah. Or just, yeah. Or interests that, but I feel like people, you know, even if like you might be writing to a, a subset, like people who are into you are into you. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it, I guess yeah. that's, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just kind of like a special group that likes me. It's not like going to ever be huge. But that's great. Yeah. No, it's fine. But that's like, so I don't know what I'm trying to do, really. Do you, okay. There's no like master plan of like getting this to be a career. And you don't ever like think, think to yourself, like, I'm going to try to write something with mass appeal. You don't play that game. No. Yeah. I do the opposite, I think. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. 
would you be concerned if one of your books did have mass appeal? Like, would you be like, oh shit, what did I do? <laughs> mm, I don't know how I would take it. I probably would be a little disturbed, but maybe it'd be cool. I don't know. I think that can happen. I think there are probably, I mean, I try, I'm trying to think if there are examples I can actually point to, but I bet there, I mean, there's gotta be like writers who have like really kind of specific sensibilities and, you know, kind of a, a cult status or a niche audience or however you want to put it. And then they happen to write something and it's like, I mean, I guess like Kerouac, cause I think of his work and it's like on the road had this like mass appeal, but like what else? Hmm. And then you read like visions of Cody, isn't that what it is? And I'm like, what the fuck? You know, it's like really out there. And I don't think it has any kind of like uh resonance with a mass audience. So I don't know. I, I think that can happen is my point. Yeah. It's like a possibility, I guess. And it could happen to anyone. Do you prefer writing to visual art or do you, do you like, do you see it that way? Is it all one thing to you or do you like, uh, delineate? Um, I think I'm better. I think I'm like more equipped to write, but I like both a lot. Yeah. Um, how do you get to, I mean, it, the visual art stuff, it's just, you have a natural gift. I, mean, I went how, to art school. <laughs> I mean, did you really have to? But that's, that's my question. Like, how much did you have to hone that? Like, did you, um, you, you practice drawing hands and practice mm, and practice? Like, or did, can you just do that? Uh, drawing hands is pretty hard. I don't, I don't know. I'm actually, yeah, I don't know. Well, you can draw hands. Like, not, I'm, I mean, I'm not like a realistic figure drawer. But come on. I can approximate a hand. Yeah. <laughs> you can draw a hand better than I can draw. A hand. Okay. So I, my, my point, my question though, is just like how much work did you, you put in a lot of work? You went to art school is what you're saying. Yeah. I went to art school. And I wasn't doing drawing very much, but I did go to art school. What were you doing? I, well, I started in drawing and then I did, um, textiles and then I did writing. So many different mediums. Yeah. Do you still do t uh, textiles? No, not really. I was into weaving, so I, w I would need a loom, and I don't have one, and they're really big and expensive. Yeah, it's like you got, it's like you got to have some real estate for a loom. Mm-hmm. Maybe you get like, get like a used loom. <laughs> yeah, I would love to get a used loom. <laughs> like, yeah. So you feel like, what were you making, like quilts and shit like that? Um, Just pieces of fabric. That's pretty much all you can do with a loom. Just but, like, I mean, were you making clothing? No, just pieces of fabric just yeah fabric. that's i mean that's the thing like what like for like upholstery maybe uh like what's the functional use like of... what do you do with fabric <laughs> <laughs> Got curtains you can make some curtains i mean what i was doing in art school was just making pieces of fabric that i would present as pieces of fabric huh. here's my piece of fabric let's let's dissect it. this piece of fabric <laughs> uh, but, um, but it's yeah it i got out of that because there's no real practical use that I could think of for that for myself. I want to, I want to say like in, in school, as like an elementary school or junior high, like there was a loom or like maybe a mini loom mm. where you're like weaving it and then you're pushing the threads together. Mm. Did you, that what you do with a loom? Yeah. It's very satisfying. It's like, so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really cool. But I don't know if I've seen like a big, like professional grade loom. <laughs> professional grade. I mean, yeah. right. Like, uh, I, guess, thing, like I guess that's how you'd call it. It's like the size of a piano. Yeah, they're pretty big. Yeah, and they're really complicated. 
I don't even know if I would remember how to use it. Like, and are you using like, you're not using yarn. I guess you, you could can use, use yarn, yeah. but you're using also like thin threads too, like different kinds of fabrics and threads. And yeah, I was, I, I was really into using like thin, almost like just regular thread, like really thin. Do you still have any of the fabrics that you made? Oh yeah. You do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like that's, that could potentially, I should have brought you one. <laughs> I was going to say, I could wear it as my shawl whenever I interview people, <laughs> just drape myself in yeah. it. I actually would like that. Are they warm? Are there any like that can function as a blanket? <laughs> they're not big. They're just, Oh, they're a little, I mean, Oh, okay. I was thinking like it was like a blanket size thing. Probably my biggest ones are like three feet by four feet. Yeah. I could potentially wrap that around me like a, like a, just like a shawl. You make a cape or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I love talking with you. Oh, good. Is this over? <laughs> <laughs> Why you you feel it? Do you feel like uh, this went well? Do you feel um, like... I don't know. Do you think it went well? Yeah. Okay. You're a good interview. All right. Um, and it's nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks for coming over. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. And uh, good luck on the rest of your travels. And I wish you a good rest when you get back home to Spokane. Thank you. All right, guys. There you go. That's Chelsea Martin. Her new essay collection is called Caca Dolce. It's available now from Soft Skull Press. You can find Chelsea online at jerkethics.com. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at underscore Chelsea underscore Martin. I think I got that right. There's some underscores involved. Caca Dolce. Go get your copy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Thanks to Perry Grip for this uh, lovely rendition of It's Raining Tacos, which uh, Chelsea and I discussed, of course. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks to, uh, wait, I said thanks to Kill Rockstars, right? If you'd like to email me, the address is letters at other PPL.com letters at other PPL.com. Let me know what you think of the show. Share your thoughts. Tell me a story. Criticize me. Praise me. I don't care. I just want to know people are out there. I know you're out there. I'm looking at the stats. I'm always curious about my international listeners. Uh, the internet tells me, like my stats tell me that I have listeners in like Yemen and shit like that. I'm like, where are these people? Oh, wait, is the song over? Yeah.